good to see you here this morning. As Bill already mentioned, the Nutt family is away celebrating U.S. Thanksgiving uh, back in Wisconsin, so I have the privilege of bringing you the word this morning. And when it was decided that I was going to be preaching, Brad had approached me and he asked me if there was anything in particular that I had hoped to speak on. And rather quickly, I told him that I felt I needed to preach on the holiness of God. And so this morning, I have one statement that's going to govern our time, and it's this. Wrestling with and understanding the holiness of God is necessary for the Christian. And so with our time together, I want to press upon you the importance of confronting the holiness of God and what and I want to make three arguments to that end. So I'm going to give all of this right up at the front for you guys who take notes, and we'll come back to them in a bit. So my three arguments are as follows. Argument number one, without an understanding of God's holiness, we can't begin to understand the wrath of God. Argument number two, without an understanding of God's holiness, we miss out on the fullness of the gospel. And argument number three, without an understanding of God's holiness, the quality of our worship and prayer and fellowship will lack. So, like I said, before we dive into these three arguments, there's some work that needs to be done. We need to lay some biblical groundwork, we need to look at the scriptures, and we need to see what they say about God's holiness and what holiness ought to mean to us. We can't very well argue the importance of God's holiness if we don't first examine exactly what God's holiness is. And lucky for us, scripture is packed to the gills with verses and passages that describe the holiness of God. So this morning, I don't have one unifying text that we're going to go through, but instead we're going to look at two texts from scripture, and each of them is going to tell us something distinct about God's holiness And after we've done this, we'll go back to the three arguments that I made earlier. So let me pray before we dive into the word. Heavenly Father, I want to echo what Bill prayed earlier. Lord, we want to come this morning and we want to see you for who you are. We want to see your character and we want to live in light of your character. And Lord, you have given us your word. You have given us your word that we might be able to see into who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work through the scripture by the spirit to that end, Lord. May we see you for who you are. Lord, would you bless the preaching and the teaching of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So like we said, or like I said, we have two scriptures to work through this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask you to open up to the book of 2 Corinthians. And we'll be looking at chapter 6, starting in verse 16, and then going to chapter 7, verse 1. Second Corinthians, chapter 6 starting in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, 
I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So with our texts this morning, we're looking to gain an understanding of what holiness is. And Paul gives us some very basic and enlightening words here for us to consider. In a nutshell, holiness is separateness. It's purity as a result of that separateness. And we can see from our text that holiness is necessarily related to cleansing. Paul says, let us clean ourselves from defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We can think about this very practically. You can't be clean if you're sitting in a puddle of mud. Cleanliness demands that you be separate from the puddle. So we see that cleanliness is partially defined by our separation from things that make us dirty. But holiness is not just about physically being clean. It's not just about physical separation. Paul is talking about a very particular separation or cleanliness. So to flesh out the text a little bit more and give it some context, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is using these words because the Corinthian church is in turmoil due to a group of congregants who oppose Paul's teachings. And prior to writing the letter of 2 Corinthians, prior to even writing 1 Corinthians, the majority of the church had outright rebelled against Paul's teaching to the point where he left. And after this, he wrote to them and warned them of the judgment coming to those who don't repent. That's 1 Corinthians. And then after sending Titus to Corinth later on, Paul finds out that the majority of the church has responded to his first letter and they have, in fact, repented. But, even still, there's this small minority of people that have not repented based on his letter. And so Paul knew that this meant continued turmoil for the church and the potential falling away of those who had repented. And so this call to them is a call to holiness. They can't pursue their own holiness and honor God by continuing to be around those who outright reject the gospel of Christ. You can't be clean while sitting in a puddle of mud. And so we see that this cleanliness or separation is physical, but it's also spiritual. Holiness is separateness through moral and spiritual purity. And additionally in our text, there's something else that Paul shows us here about the pursuit of holiness. We can't do it in and of ourselves, and it's something we will never fully achieve in this life. It's a progression, but we're called to work to that end faithfully, and bring the pursuit of holiness to completion. So let's pause for a moment. Where are we at? What is holiness? Well, based on this first text, we can say very simply, holiness is separateness. It's spiritual, physical, and moral purity or perfection. And from this text, we also know that we're called to pursue it. If you are a Christian this morning, you are called to faithfully and prayerfully pursue Holiness, we can't ignore it. And so we have a definition, 
but we really need an image to let this set in. Definitions and descriptions give us a basis, but an image fills out what words can't achieve. You can think of it like a friend who recently visited the Grand Canyon. They're describing the breadth and the beauty of it, but if you were to travel there yourself and set your eyes on it, you would know it's not an equal substitute for your friend's description. They could be Shakespeare incarnate, and it wouldn't change the fact that the site is better than the description. And so, to round out our base understanding of God's holiness, we need an image to accompany the definition. And that is the aim of our second text this morning. So, our second text is in the book of Exodus, and it'll be in chapter 33, starting in verse 12, going through the end of the chapter. Exodus 33, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will take my goodness and pass before you, and you will proclaim before you, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so, there's a word we can use when we want to describe the manifest holiness or the physical appearance of holiness in the word, and it is this it is glory. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of God's glory through the eyes of Moses. And this really is a scene to behold. Even going back through 32 into 33, these are some bold exchanges between Moses and God. And it's clear that Moses yearns for the presence of the Lord. And it's in these bold exchanges that we end up with this image that we need to round out our understanding of God's holiness. So this chapter comes to us post-golden calf. Israel has betrayed the Lord and worshipped idols while Moses and God convene on top of Mount Sinai. And to add insult to injury, the very idol the people are worshipping was made by the high priest. It's a miracle in and of itself that the Lord didn't wipe out Israel right there and then, but by his grace, he relents. And it's directly after this we meet Exodus 33, 
And God not only has spared them for what they have done, but he also continues to promise them that he will bring them into the promised land. But something is slightly different about the arrangement now. God has relented, but he declares that he will no longer be going with them anymore. And he'll be sending an angel with them to go instead. And really what this is, is a test. And surprisingly, Israel passes. You can probably count the number of times Israel passes a test on one hand in Scripture. And should Israel have accepted these new terms, it would show that they really only value the gift of the promised land and the presence of their God with them is of little to no consequence. But that's not what happens. Israel mourns the loss of the presence of God and Moses petitions for the original plan. Moses knows the presence of the Lord is more desirable than any land they could be given. And so with this situation, Moses is not content with just an angel leading them. In fact, the promised land isn't worth anything without the Lord's presence amidst his people. So Moses, being the bold man that he is, asks that God would lead them himself and is actually granted his request. And it's worth stopping to pause and think they weren't wiped out right away after worshiping the golden calf. That alone is grace enough. Not only that, God was willing to send an angel with them to guide them into the promised land. That is beyond graceful. And even still, Moses asks them for God to be with them as they go in. And God still grants that. So you've had a couple of really bold exchanges for Moses here. And this is where it gets even crazier is that even God going with them into the promised land isn't enough for Moses at the moment that we see in this text. Moses wants to see the glory of the Lord right there and then. And this is where we're given our image of God's holiness or God's glory rather. It's clear that Moses' priorities are straight and there is something far more valuable than land flowing with milk and honey. The glory of the Lord surpasses all of that and it is infinitely more valuable and pure and beautiful. And Moses knows this and he wants to see it. But after this request is made, this is where God reveals to us the consequences of his glory. God's glory is so pure, so perfect, that the mere sight of it would have killed Moses. So much so that the only format that's possible for Moses to witness a fraction of God's glory requires him to hide in the cleft of a rock while God's hand covers the entrance as he passes, and after that, he's only permitted to see God's back. That is the God we are worshiping this morning. The God of such glory that to behold him face to face would tear us apart at the seams. So perfect and radiant that gazing at him with our own eyes would result in death. And we've seen other instances of this in scripture that give us similar insight into the holiness of God. When confronted on the road to Damascus, Paul goes blind for a time as a result of seeing the glory of God. Isaiah is reduced to tears and fear at the sight of the Lord's robe filling the temple and he proclaims, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. And so anywhere in scripture where we get a glimpse of God's glory, we see people being brought to their knees, unraveled and oft times physically marked from the experience. 
This glory is holiness made manifest. The glory of the Lord displays the magnitude of his holiness. And so with that, we have a baseline for ourselves this morning to consider when we talk about God's holiness. God is infinitely perfect in every conceivable and inconceivable way. And because of this, he is set apart from us. And this perfection and its distance from our impurity is what we call holiness. And the outward manifestation of this holiness is what we call God's glory, which is depicted as deadly to sinful man and only seen in indirect ways in scripture as despair the people who are witnessing it. And so we have this baseline for what the holiness of God is, and I, and I don't even begin to claim that we can have a full understanding of it, but that's why we need to wrestle with it. We still need to look at it and examine it. And so we've examined the scriptures and we have this baseline before us. And now that we've done that, I want to go back to the three arguments I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. So once again, our overarching statement this morning is we need to wrestle with and understand the holiness of God. In our day-to-day, it can be tempting to pass off holiness as another characteristic of God. But God's holiness is not only glorious, it has serious implications, worthy of our attention, focus, and worship. Calling it a characteristic would be doing it injustice because every characteristic that God has is an outflowing of his holiness. So argument number one, Without an understanding of God's holiness, we can't begin to understand God's wrath. God's wrath is a scary subject. It's uncomfortable, and if we aren't careful while we read Scripture and we have a poor understanding of wrath, there are many passages that can result in us scratching our heads and asking ourselves, why would God do such a thing? We're tempted not to acknowledge the wrath of God because it can seem contradictory to the loving and gracious God we see in the gospel. But the God of that uncomfortable wrath is the very same God of the gospel, make no mistake. And God's holiness is the center of all of that. For God to be infinitely pure in every way and set apart means that by necessity, he can't tolerate impurity of any kind. And so as a result, we end up with wrath. Another way you could put wrath is the cleansing of impurity. The consequences of sin is death. And we are inherently sinful people, and it is only by God's grace that we're spared from wrath to begin, or to begin with. If we're not in Christ, this should concern us greatly. It should bring us to our knees because there isn't anything worse than facing the wrath of a holy God. And so grappling with and understanding the nature of the holiness of God begins to change how we view different parts of Scripture. We stop asking ourselves, why would God do that? And we start to ask, well, why wouldn't God do that? After all, the slightest imperfection, the slightest sin, when compared to an infinitely holy God, is unacceptable and deserving of God's wrath. We aren't entitled to mercy And we aren't entitled to grace. We are entitled to wrath. 
In fact, the notion of assuming that you're entitled to grace kills the essence of grace itself. It comes full circle when we see that without wrath, there's no grace at all. They're flip sides of each other. Grace is forgiveness for that which doesn't warrant forgiveness. And in light of God's holiness, wrath is warranted. If wrath can't be warranted, then grace loses its meaning. And if God does not exhibit wrath, then God is not holy. And if God is not holy, then the gospel as a whole and the scriptures lose their meaning. They ring hollow. And that's very serious. It diminishes everything that we gather here every week to do. And that leads well into my second argument, is that without an understanding of God's holiness, we miss out on the fullness of the gospel. We see now that wrath is a necessary outflowing of God's holiness, but it also sheds light on the glory of the gospel. The gospel is good news this morning because God is holy. Jesus is holy. To satisfy the wrath of a holy God, a holy sacrifice is required, and this is where we see the cruciality of God's holiness. If Jesus were just a normal man, his sacrifice could not satisfy God's wrath. Salvation hinges on the character of the Godhead, and we can take great comfort this morning in the fact that our God is a holy God. The fullness of the gospel is that a holy God, completely perfect, sufficient within himself, allowed his holy and perfect son to be given over to his wrath for you and I. You and I. The ones he must be separate from. The puddle of mud. You and I who would normally die if we were to gaze upon him. You and I are the ones he gave his son up for. And I don't know about you, but that changes the gospel for me. That's mind-blowing grace. It doesn't make sense. Because of Jesus, we can be counted as righteous before God. The gap that used to separate us due to our sin is abolished. and We're no longer separated from him. In Christ, we partake in intimate relationship with the Father. Additionally, we can be sure of our salvation because God is holy. The word of a holy God holds its meaning. It holds its promises and the sacrifice of a holy God holds its atonement forever. If you are in Christ this morning, praise God. You are spared from the wrath that you deserve. And not only that, you are brought into communion with the Holy Father himself. You can be sure of it because of the holiness of God. Through Christ, you are sealed this morning. And that is good news. And it's news that shines brighter when we consider the holiness of the one who proclaims it. If you aren't in Christ this morning, the invitation stands. Christ is calling, ushering you into the fold. The sins that will condemn you are paid for by the blood of the Holy Lamb through faith in him. And so we have good news to dwell on this morning. And this naturally cascades into my third argument. Because of holiness, we have wrath. And from wrath, the fullness of grace reveals itself to us. And it is holiness that makes this grace secure. This is the God being proclaimed this morning, a holy God. And living in light of this should radically change the passion we have for worship, prayer, 
and fellowship. When you sing, you are singing to a holy God. And when you pray, you are talking directly to a holy God. When you fellowship, you are mingling with the children of a holy God. That should be an honor. It is an honor. And how tragic it is when we don't do these things in full reverence of who God is. How can we do these things fully and well if we don't know the one to whom we do them? So if we wrestle with the holiness of God, we begin to see the picture more clearly. And so I call on you this morning to dwell on the holiness of God. Understand the assurance of your salvation in Christ in light of his holiness. Understand the magnitude of the wrath from which you've been saved. Rejoice and pursue holiness as you're called to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are a holy God. Lord, the distance between us in sin is insurmountable, impossible for us to get to you, Lord, and it is by your grace and your grace alone that you gave up your Son. Holy and completely sufficient within yourself, you gave up what was good and pure, for a puddle of mud. Lord, we thank you for the salvation we have in Christ and we thank you that it is sealed to us because of who you are. You are holy and you are good and you are worthy of much praise. Would we live in light of your character? Would it not be lost on us? We thank you, Lord, for these words. Would we go and would we acknowledge your holiness in all that we do? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.